All right. Good morning, church. Good to see you guys. Good to be with you guys. You guys make me so nervous. I don't know if you know that. I know it's nothing you've done personally, but every time I come up here, I'm just like coming out of my skin with nervousness. Um, So be nice to me. Uh, Let's uh, open up in our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. While we're going there, let's remember to give some love to our Carpentry and Ventura campus. Let's let them know we love them. (laughs) Ephesians chapter 1, we are studying the first 14 verses, one verse per week. And we're in a series called Identity Issues. God's glory in us through Christ's work for us. And this will be our fourth week in the series, so we're in verse 4. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. We'll read the verse, we'll pray, and we'll talk about what this means. So Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture, says this. I'm reading from the New Living Translation. Even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. Let's pray. Lord, that verse is beyond human description, but perhaps really beyond human comprehension. And yet you've revealed it to us and you want it to shape and transform who we are. You want it to inform how we think and feel and act. You want it to do good things in us. And so we ask the Holy Spirit, you would come and minister it to us. Lord, I... I confess my inadequacy and my inability and even my lack of comprehension. Certainly my unworthiness to preach such great truths, but we rejoice that we don't look to men, we look to you, God. We trust in your spirit to teach us all things. We ask that you do a good work in us whereby we would adore and enjoy Christ more, having sat under the faithful preaching of his word. We ask that you do this for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, the title of this message is Rejection and Election. Rejection and Election. Let me say this as a prefatory statement. For many of us, experiences of rejection are what mostly shape our sense of identity. Experiences of rejection for most of us is primarily what shapes our sense of identity. Those moments that we've all had of being skipped over, left out, unwanted, not chosen. These negative episodes in our lives not only inform, in a very profound way, how we feel about ourselves, but they inform the way we think about God and the way that we act with and toward others. Let me try to explain. As a kid, I was a really bad athlete, a horrible athlete. I I still am a horrible athlete. I I do okay with sports like surfing and dirt biking and uh, um, skiing and snowboarding. Those kind of sports I do okay at. But when it comes to ball sports, I'm horrible. I mean, seriously, terrible. One of my earliest memories is striking out in (laughs) T-ball. You understand, T-ball means the ball's not moving, 
Like it's sitting on a tee. And it was a championship game. I was on a team called the Indians and Carpinteria. Championship game. And they announced, next up to bat, Britt Merrick. And I go up there and, okay, he missed it that time. Oh boy. Okay, Britt Merrick, one more try. Oh, he struck out on the loudspeaker in front of my family, my dad and everybody. Listen, who strikes out at T-ball? The, the ball's not moving. That, that's how horrible I am. That, that's one of my earliest memories of my whole life. Striking out the T-ball in front of everybody. One of the greatest fears of my whole life was when, as a kid, it came time to choose teams for sports. Remember those times? Everyone would line up, okay, let's choose teams. And there'd be captains, of which I was never. And then they would choose. And listen, the truth is, I was never chosen. I was always the very last person standing in the line or one of the last people standing there. I was never the one chosen. If I was on someone's team, they got me by default. They ended up with me. And one of the effects that this had on me was that it made me feel defeated before I ever even got on the field or the court. I already felt defeated. I was convinced that I could and would only disappoint myself and other people before I even got on the field. And to be perfectly honest, the same is true of me today. Because I was never chosen, I always feel defeated when I'm facing a field or a court even 30 years later. And nobody can rescue me from this. Nobody can rescue me from this. I'm trapped and I'm doomed in having never been chosen for sports as a kid. Now, let's think about our relationship with God. We often feel defeated in it. Even before we step on the field, so to speak, the field of life, even before we get out of bed, we often feel defeated in our relationship with God. We already have a sense that all we could possibly do today is disappoint ourselves and God. The reason that we have that sense is because we've always been taught through culture that the good ones are the ones that get chosen. And so we think that it must be true that the good ones are the ones that God chooses, the ones that God wants, the ones that God uses and blesses. And upon a moment's reflection, we realize that we're not one of the good ones. I'm not good. In fact, I'm bad. We're not good. And if you think you're good, you're the worst of all. You need to spend some time in scripture, which declares you to be bad. None are good, not a single one, scripture says. And and so those of us that realize we're bad, we, we sometimes live in fear of rejection. Very few of us think that God would ultimately reject us once we've been born again, once we've been saved. But very many of us think that he at least rejects me today and must be disappointed with me. After all, I'm disappointed with myself. And so once again, our identity, our self-perception gets largely shaped by a sense of rejection. And the sense of rejection informs the way that we think, 
feel, and act toward God, self, and others. And it creates destructive behavior, perfectionism, ungodly competition, sabotage, belittling others, self-loathing, and fear. But unlike my predicament with sports, what if we could be rescued from this predicament? What if we could be rescued? And you know what explains the rescue that is brought to us? Is the doctrine of election as seen in verse 4. The doctrine of election. Again, we read verse 4. Even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. Now, let's talk for a moment about this concept of being chosen or the doctrine of election, because certainly it makes very many of us uncomfortable. The first thing that we have to realize is this. Election is not human speculation, it's divine revelation. John Stott said that. It's not human speculation. It's not as though Augustine or Calvin made up the doctrine of election. It's not human speculation. It's divine revelation. It's what we see in Scripture. The difficulty is that Scripture just simply says, with very little explanation and no defense, that we are chosen. That we are elect. It just says that with almost no explanation. So much so that it caused Martin Lloyd-Jones to say, in Scripture, election is a statement, not an argument. And so, so we look to Scripture. And we see Jesus in John 15 saying this, You didn't choose me. I chose you. We read in 1 Thessalonians 1.4, We know, dear brothers and sisters, that God loves you and has chosen you to be his own people. We read in 2 Thessalonians 2.13, As for us, we can't help but thank God for you, dear brothers and sisters, loved by the Lord. We are always thankful that God chose you to be among the first to experience salvation, a salvation that came through the Spirit, who makes you holy, and through your belief in the truth. We read 1 Peter 1.2, where it says, God the Father knew you and chose you long ago. And his spirit has made you holy. As a result, you have obeyed him and have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. So when we look at scripture, it's just the statement of fact that we are chosen. And it's not just some New Testament aberration. We see it through, or aberration, excuse me, thank you. We see it throughout the Old Testament as well. Israel is called the elect of God, the chosen of God. Over and over we read that about Israel. And yet, even though it's so firmly declared in Scripture, almost everyone finds the doctrine of election to be difficult. Why? Because we also find the truth of free will to be present. God has created us with free will, and he proves such by the fact that he holds us to be morally responsible. The fact that we are held by God to be responsible for our decisions proves that he has given us free will, the ability to choose. In scripture, we simply see both that number one, God is sovereign, and number two, man is responsible. 
We see both of these in scripture. Two clearly established poles. God is sovereign. Man is responsible. And then there's two corollaries to that. And I'm borrowing from D.A. Carson here. He says this. With the fact that God is sovereign and man is responsible, we must understand that God's sovereignty never functions to mitigate man's responsibility. Man is always responsible, even though God is sovereign. And the second corollary is this. Man's responsibility never functions to diminish God's sovereignty. God is always sovereign, even though people have free will and are responsible for their choices. You see, in Scripture, unlike in our minds... Divine sovereignty and human responsibility are not enemies. In scripture, they are, they are friends that are in some mysterious way compatible and work together in the economy of God. What the doctrine of election does is it presents us with a God who defies finite analysis. That divine, uh, divine sovereignty and human responsibility are true. Presents us with a God that defies finite analysis. Prevents us from looking at God and saying, Oh, I understand you and all your ways. What, what, what sort of a God would God be if he was comprehensible to our fallen, perverted minds? Doctrine of election presents us with a God who defies finite analysis. It is a doctrine that lets God be God and realize and causes us to realize that we are not God. And so in wanting to identify the tension of election, John Stott uses this explanation. He says this, Didn't I choose God? Somebody asked indignantly. To which we must answer, yes, indeed you did, and freely, but only because God in eternity has first chosen you. Again, didn't I decide for Christ? Asked somebody else. To which we must reply, yes, indeed you did, and freely, but only because in eternity God has first decided for you. R. Kent Hughes would say this on the subject. We, we must never allow our subjective experience of choosing Christ to water down the fact that we would not have chosen him if he had not first chosen us. Okay, I don't understand anything now. <laughs> but, but what do we do with this clear doctrine of election? That we may not fully comprehend it. What do we do with it? Well, admittedly, it creates many questions. And we could spend the next several hundred years talking about the tension and arguing about which truth should win out to the detriment of the others, the sovereignty of God, or the responsibility of man. We could spend the next several hundred years doing that, as the church has spent the last several hundred years doing We could also spend a lot of time wondering about what it means for those who are not the elect. Who are not chosen. There's a lot of questions. There's a lot of things that we could ponder and think about. There's a lot of things that would trouble us with the doctrine of election. But maybe for our purposes today, we could begin to think differently. Instead of fretting over the questions that the doctrine of election creates, what if we begin to rejoice in and live out the answers that the doctrine of election provides? 
And we'll start by saying this. The big question of identity, and we're studying identity here, the big question of identity, really the big question of life, is this. Am I accepted? That's the question. Am I accepted? And when life tells us that we're not accepted, either through parents or peers, teachers, neighbors, bosses, magazines, t-ball games, when life tells us that we're not accepted, then we spend the rest of our lives trying to prove that we actually are and trying to find someone who actually agrees that we're accepted and worthy of acceptance. And when we don't, when we don't find the sort of affirmation, when we don't find anyone to corroborate our sense that we ought to be accepted, then we spend our life wondering, well, who am I? And will I ever be good enough? And that question is not only solved with the affirmation of people, that question needs ultimate resolution. Because where life ends is before God. Where every life will end is on the deathbed. And it won't matter who thought you were great on this earth. The question of who am I and will I ever be good enough needs ultimate resolve before God. And so I'm wondering who am I and will I ever be good enough? In the search for self and acceptance, when we don't discover that in Christ, we find ourselves engaged in all sorts of strange and destructive behaviors. But what you must hear today from Scripture is that Christ has already told us of the futility of trying to find ourselves. He says in Matthew in multiple places, you have to lose your life to find it. You're looking for yourself? What is that? You have to lose your life to find it. The truth being communicated by Christ is that we cannot actually find ourselves and so then prove our worth. Rather, the truth communicated by Scripture is that we have been found by God. The doctrine of election says. Jesus said, I chose you. You haven't found anything. I chose you. You, I came seeking to save the lost. One author, Eugene Lowry, says about this, search for one's identity is doomed to failure because it rests on the false premise that it is incumbent upon us to be successful in the search for self. Instead, the gospel declares that we have been found That identity is a gift one can never obtain or reach on the basis of human effort. We have been found. I chose you, Scripture says. Identity is a gift, a function of God's grace that has come after you. Again, verse 4, even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ. So that we could say this need for acceptance that all of us have, that largely dictates the way that we behave with ourselves and others and feel about God, this intense need for acceptance is dealt with by the Father's love and his choosing of us. Even before the world, the Father loved you and chose you in Christ. So that the need for acceptance is dealt with in his love and his choosing. 
The mistake that we make in life is that we try to live so that God will love us rather than living because he has already loved us. We try to live lives that would cause God to love us instead of living a life according to the fact that he already loved and chose us. And as long as we let our parents, teachers, friends, and foes determine whether or not we're chosen, then we live life according to untruths. My self-perception is based upon never having been chosen as a child. Then I will live the rest of my life according to untruths. You see, the world and its way of determining whether or whether or not you are chosen is false, is untrue. And the opportunity that we have in the face of the doctrine of election is to live according to a greater truth. That from before the beginning of the world, God loved you. From before the beginning of the world, God chose you. Long before you were ever rejected by peers, neglected by parents, passed over for promotions, you are already chosen by God. The thoughtful mind says, well, why? Why am I chosen by God? And what we must understand, what is inherent in the doctrine of election is this. God always chooses for his own purposes, not according to our personalities. God always chooses for his own purposes, not our personalities. And it's always been that way. When Moses in the book of Deuteronomy is explaining to Israel God's choosing of them, he says in chapter 7, starting in verse 7, The Lord did not set his heart on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other nations. For you were the smallest of nations. Rather, it was simply that the Lord loves you. That is why he rescued you. You see, we often think that there's something we either have done or must do to win God's love. But the doctrine of election tells us this can't possibly be so. Because he loved us and he chose us before he made the world. So what could we have ever done to cause him to love us? What could there have been about us that was lovable? We were not even in existence yet. We usually think, oh, I'm chosen, therefore I'm awesome. Or conversely, we think, I'm not chosen, therefore I'm worthless. But the doctrine of election tells us that with God, you are chosen. Not because you're awesome, but because God is awesome in his love toward you. And he loves you, not because you are valuable, but because he loves you, you are now valuable. And you are not chosen because you're worthy, but you are of great worth because you have been chosen by God. Don't forget the truth of 1 Corinthians chapter 1 where we're told, Remember, dear brothers and sisters, God chose things the world considered foolish. And he chose things that are powerless 
God chose things despised by the world. Things counted as nothing at all. As a result, no one can ever boast in the presence of God. God has united you with Christ Jesus. Christ made us right with God. He made us pure and holy and freed us from sin. Therefore, as the scriptures say, if you want to boast, boast only about the Lord. You see, the doctrine of election rightly understood doesn't cause anyone to say, oh, I, I'm chosen, I'm awesome, to the exclusion of others. Because scripture says God chooses the foolish, the powerless, the despised, the nothings. And, and, and when culture, when humanity hears that, it doesn't always resonate with us. It doesn't always resonate because we have this deep sense of needing to be desirable. Needing to have earned something. To be deserving of something. To be worthy of something. And there is where humanity errs. Because that is a description of God. Only God is truly desirable in who he is. Only God has truly earned praise by what he has done. Only God is deserving. Only God is worthy. And so your desire to be those things and your discontent in not being those things is the same as Eve's in the garden. You want to be like God, desirable, deserving, and worthy. Therefore, you stand condemned with Eve. But you have been chosen. You need a savior. You have been saved. You are foolish and powerless and despised and nothing, but God has united you with Christ Jesus. And Jesus has made you right with God. And he has made you pure and holy in God's eyes by paying for your sins and exchanging your worthlessness for his worth. So, why did God choose me? We can only say because of his love and his great pleasure. Verse 5 that we'll get into next week says God decided in advance to adopt you into his own family by bringing you to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do and it gave him great pleasure. Why, 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 why did God choose me? Because of his love and because that's what he wanted to do and it gave him great pleasure. And and you mustn't hear that in the, the negative sense. You see, chosen and not chosen in life has had so many negative connotations for us. But, but you must hear that in all the warmth that God intends it to mean for you. With all the love and the affection that the Father wants you to hear. When he says, I, I chose you because I love you and it gave me great pleasure to do so. You, you must hear that with all the warmth and affection that God intends for it to convey to you. And you must hear that in a way that is freeing. Because God chose us in his love and for his great pleasure, not because of our love or any of our goodness. You see, most of my feelings and so actions are shaped by a sense of I'm not good enough. 
I didn't do good enough. I don't love God enough. But those are not the issues anymore. Yes, they are absolutely true. I'm not good enough. I didn't do good enough. And I don't love God enough. And apart from Christ, I'm defeated before I even step on the field. But I have been rescued. Before the foundations of the world, God chose me in Christ. I have been rescued by Christ. So the issue is no longer, am I good enough? The issue is now, God is good enough. The issue is no longer that you haven't done good enough. The issue is now that Christ has done good enough on your behalf. The issue is no longer that we don't love God enough. The issue is now that God loves us enough. And though these should be the most wonderful truths we've ever heard, they are, they are perhaps some of the most difficult to appropriate to our lives. Someone once said, the most difficult part of mature faith is allowing ourselves to be the object of God's delight. Hear that. Some of you mature Christians. I, I need to hear that. The most difficult part of mature faith is allowing ourselves to be the object of God's delight. You are chosen because he loves you and it gave him great pleasure to unite you with Christ. Now, in thinking upon that, we must think rightly about it. Because though we use human choosing, in my illustration of sports, though we use human choosing in the beginning of the sermon, we must realize that one of the results of our own fallenness is that human choosing often creates pride. Just as I suffered from a sense of rejection and having not been chosen, had I always been the first one chosen, I would have suffered from pride. In juxtaposition to this, the results of human choosing because of our fallenness, God's choosing of us can only create in us a profound sense of humility and thanksgiving. Because the reason that God chose us was in himself, his love, not in us, our merit. I've been walking with the Lord now for almost 20 years. I've been teaching the Bible now for almost 15 years. And I have never felt more sinful, wicked, and undeserving in my life than I feel now. But I have also never felt more loved and chosen and rejoiced over in my life than I feel now. And I am struck with the incredible truth in my daily failures that God expects more failure from me than I expect from myself. That he chose me from before the foundations of the world and in his foreknowledge, in his omniscience, in his ability to know all things actual and possible, he knew every one of my failures. He foresaw them. And he chose me still. God expects more failure from me than I even expect from myself. I've never felt more wicked and sinful and undeserving than I feel 
this year. I've never felt more loved and chosen and accepted in Christ than I feel this year. Because the gospel tells me that I'm both. The gospel tells me that I'm desperately wicked and desperately loved. That I'm completely unworthy, but I'm fully accepted by God in Christ. Having been united to Christ in faith. And though I am both, my identity is no longer formed by rejection. My identity is now formed by election. Both are true. I'm unworthy, but I'm accepted. I'm wicked and yet I'm loved. I'm dirty and yet I've been made holy. So many reasons to blame me, and yet I'm blameless because of Christ. So that the greater truth wins the day. So my identity is no longer shaped by rejection. My identity is shaped by election. Before he made the world, God loved me and chose me in Christ that I might be holy and blameless. My identity is no longer formed by the fact that I'm bad, but it's formed by the fact that Christ is good and has done ultimate good on my behalf because the Father loves me. And by Christ's doing, as I've repented of my sins and put my faith in him and so been united to Christ, in Christ's doing, I have been made to be without fault in the eyes of the Father. Even though my faults are numerous, those of you that know me could list them. Because of Christ for me, because of my position in him, I am without fault in the eyes of the Father. And the New Testament reverberates this message over and over that we might catch it. We'll see it again in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 27. We see it in Colossians 1.22, which says, Yet now he has reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ in his physical body. As a result, he has brought you into his own presence, and you are holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault. We'll hear it again in the book of Jude. In verse 24, it'll say, Now all glory to God, who is able to keep you from falling away and will bring you with great joy into his glorious presence without a single fault. And it's all of Christ doing on our behalf. It's not that Christ wiped the slate clean and now you have a clean slate and you need to fill it up with good things and excellent performance. That's not the gospel. In the gospel, something has been removed, the weight and the stain of our sins, and something has been provided, the righteousness and perfect life of Christ to our account. So that we now, because we are united with Christ, stand before the Father without fault, holy and blameless. What do we do with that? That should cause us to praise God. That is why at the beginning of verse 3, which goes through verse 14, is one long sentence in the Greek. Paul said, back in 
Ephesians 1, Paul said, all praise to God. And that is why he ends the sentence in verse 14 by saying, he did this so we would praise and glorify him. Well, what do we do about this thing that's been done for us by Christ? We bless God. We praise and we glorify God. And in endeavoring to praise and glorify God, this truth causes us to want to live for God, to actually act holy as we've been made holy, to bring the practical in line with the positional. Because, number one, we have a new nature, which actually hungers and thirsts for righteousness, which actually wants to live differently. We're a new creation with a new nature. We've been made alive to God, though we were dead in our transgressions. And now we actually want to live rightly before God. And until we're gone in glory, there will always be the struggle between the flesh and the new nature and the spirit of God in us. But it's there, isn't it? We're longing for holiness and righteousness. We, we want to live differently by truth, not only by name, by action, not only in position. And then secondly, Scripture tells us to live differently. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, Paul would say, lead a life that is worthy of that calling. From before he ever made the world, God loved you and chose you in Christ to be holy and blameless in his sight. Therefore, live a life that's worthy of that. We have a new nature that wants to live a right life. Scripture exhorts us to live a right life according to what Christ has done. And we'll say this, incongruous living is exhausting. And it's a tiresome Christian life that is denoted by only positional holiness and never experiences practical holiness. And the doctrine of election always moves us toward holy living. Who are the elect? They're endeavoring to live holy lives for the glory of God because of what Christ has done for them. And one of the ways that we live congru- in congruence with the truth of election is to finally accept ourselves. Self-loathing and never-ending self-castigation are incongruent with election. It simply isn't right to forever hold against ourselves what was nailed against the cross in Christ. It is simply wrong to refuse to forgive ourselves where God has forgiven us in Christ. It simply will not do to refuse to accept ourselves when God has accepted us in Christ. Brennan Manning says about this, the miraculous movement from self-rejection to self-acceptance is not based on therapy or the power of positive thinking. Rather, it is anchored in the personal experience of the acceptance of Jesus Christ. It is not the result of pop psychology. It is an act of faith in the grace of God. Before the world ever rejected you and before you ever rejected yourself, God accepted you in Christ. And this faith in the grace of God changes the way that we live in the world with others. You see, when we live out of a sense of rejection, we constantly need to prove ourselves 
worthy of acceptance. If our identity is not chosen, always rejected, then we're always trying to prove ourselves worthy of acceptance. And so we do this through perfectionism, ungodly competition, sabotage, belittling others. But when we accept ourselves with all of the horror of who we are, when we accept ourselves only because God in Christ has accepted us, then we're less prone to belittle others, long for power, vie for position and popularity. We're no longer wrecked by criticism and failure and being second or being last. So then, in our relationships, we don't need to criticize others to feel better about us. We don't need to beat them down to pull ourselves up. We can actually have the hope of being humble, loving, and accepting. When we live out of a sense of election, we're free from having to prove ourselves acceptable so that we are free to promote praise, help, and serve others. So that again, Lowry says, the gospel is the freedom of loving others as we love ourselves. And we can now love ourselves because we are in fact loved by God. No longer having to prove our own worth, we may now be set free from making others prove themselves to us. Man, I'm preaching to myself. No longer having to prove our own worth, we may now be set free from making others prove themselves to us. Because what appears in my life to be arrogance looking down on others is actually a refusal to accept myself. I think lowly of myself, and so I have to make others lower that I might feel better. Because I'm failing to appropriate the truth of the doctrine of election to my life. And living that way makes the game of life a bummer. Always looking to tear down that I might pull myself up. It makes a plain field of life a heartbreak, drudgery disappointment. But you see, laying hold of, by faith, the truth of the doctrine of election makes life a joy. And it makes a playing field of life look, look altogether different when we're finally free to promote, praise, help, and serve others. And I'll end by just saying this. When I was a kid in sports, if I had always won if I played every game perfectly or if I even played every game well and so was often or, or even always chosen to be on the team, I would have stepped onto the field differently. I would step onto the court in a different way. And so because we are in Christ, we stand on the difficult field of life before God differently. Because we are chosen in Christ, 
we stand on the difficult field of life before God differently. Not as dirty, but as holy. Not as judged and shamed and at odds with God, but as recipients of grace who have peace with God. Not as those who are cursed, but as those who have been blessed. And not as rejected, but as elected because of God's love and for God's great pleasure. And I must say to you, as I say to myself, that God in Christ may be the only one who ever validates you. And that is enough. To seek any more is to sin. Lord, save us from the error of needing more than your love and your election of us. Spirit, enliven our hearts that we would rejoice in, be satisfied with and be transformed by the fact that before you made the world, you loved us and chose us in Christ and that we now stand before you without fault. Thank you, God. Anyone for whom this is not true, we pray together that God, they would repent of their sins today. They turn toward you and put their faith in you. That God, they be united with Christ by putting their faith in what he's done for them. That they would be saved and discover that they are chosen. They would experience today your love and the washing away of sins and guilt and shame. And that we all together would rejoice in the fact that before you made the world, you loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in your eyes. Thank you, God.